20 years makes this guy sound old. But uh, it's true, 20 years ago, I couldn't be here. Nobody would have a use for me. And, uh, and things have really changed drastically. It's funny, uh, I've told this to people who I've had conferences with, that this is the first serious uh, genre conversation we've had in this culture since the novel in the 18th century. And when I went back and did some research just on that evolution, everything was the same. Uh, the novel took the same rap that memoirs did uh, when it came in. And, uh, and now we've replaced them in that position. We'll see what the future for memoir is. And the future f for novels certainly panned out. Um, thanks for coming, Gary. Thanks for the invitation, uh, especially. Uh, this is a place I've always wanted to come to. Uh, whatever capacity I would be here would have been hap would have made me feel uh, good. Uh, you have a magic kingdom here, and I hope you all appreciate it. I think you do. Um, the hardest thing about uh, writing is knowing what to write, and the hardest thing about reading is knowing what to read. And uh, I, I, my instinct told me to read what I'm going to read tonight. It's an essay on place, mostly. and. Uh, the people who come here have been a lot of places. Uh, and I've been debating this with a friend of mine uh, back home. She, what's the concept of home? Where do we belong? Where do we fit? Uh, and in a way, this is what this is about. But um, it's about other things, too. Can you hear me in the back? Am I OK? Good. All right. Uh, title of the, uh, this is an essay slash memoir. Uh, living in Michigan, Dreaming Manhattan, uh, A Meditation on Memory and Place. I have an epigraph from a woman uh, who's Michigan writer, Kathleen Stocking, uh, from a book she wrote about an area in Michigan uh, where I live part-time. And Kathy says, someone once said that if the Leland that the Le if the Leelanau Peninsula in Michigan has a polar opposite, it's probably Manhattan. And that's where I came from, and that's what this is about. It's just after dawn on New Year's Day. My wife Carol and I are at our getaway cottage in Leelanau County in the Michigan North Woods. Carol's in the loft working on a painting, and I'm standing at, a, standing at the bay window nursing a cup of coffee, gazing out across Lake Michigan. A few embers still glow in the fireplace, and the smell of smoke intensifies when I stack more logs on the grating. Outside, a pale sun rises through foggy mist above the bay, and a new snow begins to coat the evergreens. It's an idyllic winter scene, to be sure, yet my imagination, like the fire, suddenly flares, and the scene I'm conjuring up takes place back in the early 60s when I was living in Greenwich Village. 
An early October morning and the air has just turned nippy. I leave my West Village walk up and stroll through Washington Square Park, past sneakered white uniformed nannies wheeling baby strollers and scruffy teenagers making their morning connection with seedy looking drug dealers. I pause to watch the old men in pea jackets and wool caps playing chess and I see a group of NYU students gesturing with their hands and talking loudly as they head for their morning classes. Picking up at Times, New York Times, at the 6th Avenue subway newsstand, I inhale the musty aroma from the subway grating and I watch the spiraling steam rise while my feet are being warmed by the burst of compressed air that's been pushed up in the departing train's wake. I walk but by the tiny asphalt park across the avenue and pause to watch the neighborhood kids playing hooky basketball on the fenced-in asphalt court known as the cage. As I head up Bleecker, I wave at the Italian storekeeper stacking the morning's shipment of produce in the outdoor stores uh, stalls. My last stops at David's Potbelly where I linger over a hot cup of coffee or a cider, uh, depending on season, and kibitz with the usual coterie of neighborhood writers and painters about the Yankee season-ending loss to the Red Sox. At 10 o'clock, at 10 o'clock, I get up and walk over to the new school and attend my weekly writing class. That scenario has been evolving in my imagination since we arrived at the cottage a few days ago. Perhaps I'm more sentimental than usual because I'm disappointed that Carol and I will not be going back to Manhattan for the holidays. It's only the second time that's happened since we've moved to Michigan, and that's almost 40 years ago. We're here at the cottage because I'm trying to finish a memoir before the January 15th deadline. Home for these last past uh, three plus decades has been East Lansing, 2,000 miles southeast of Leelanau County. Surrounded by lush, flat farmland, East Lansing is a lively but generic Midwestern college town. Grand River Avenue, uh, its main thoroughfare is comprised mainly of hole-in-the-wall student bars, sweatshirt emporiums, and the kind of fast food shops you're likely to find in almost any college town. The red and gold tower, the red and gold tower record store, well, that's not there anymore, across from campus seems sadly misplaced in this chintzy milieu. Two miles to the west is the city of Lansing, East Lansing's more populated blue-collar neighbor. Lansing is Oldsmobile's home base, as well as being the state capital. To a couple of former New Yorkers, Lansing, East Lansing is no more or less stimulating than our Carbondale, Illinois, or Des Moines, Iowa. Willanau County, on the other hand, is to Michigan what the Finger Lakes region is to upstate New York, or what Cape Cod is to Massachusetts. It's a prized locale of woodlands, rolling hills, wineries, and cherry orchards, surrounded on three sides by the blue expanse of Lake Michigan. After 25 years of living in a landlocked college town, we wanted a more exotic setting. A retreat where Carol could paint and I could write without the usual interruptions and distractions of home. So 20 years ago, we decided to have the cottage built. 
It's turned out to be a sanity-saving move. Despite the fact that the guy who delivers my firewood, the local furnace man, and the young boys who clean the chimney in October continue to refer to us as fudgies from downstate. Since we couldn't go to New York for the holidays, we decided to bring Manhattan to the North Woods. On the day we drove up here, Carol packed two carousel trays containing slides that we'd taken during our last few holidays in the city. And I made certain to bring along a handful of CDs and some books about New York in the 50s and 60s. Ever since I turned 50, I've been revisiting old jazz and reading books by writers who either grew up in New York, New York, or else came to Manhattan from somewhere else. Many of them write about hobnobbing with the New York intelligentsia of that uh, romantic era, Ginsburg, Kerouac, Lenny Bruce, Thelonious Monk, that raffish, exotic mix of avant-garde writers and performers that captivated me when I was growing up. Back then, the new school downtown and Columbia Uptown were the, place, the places for would-be intellectuals and aspiring artists, while Greenwich Village clubs like the Gate and the Vanguard were late-night spots where you'd go to hear the likes of Monk, Coltrane, and Miles Davis. And some of the local taverns were well-known watering holes for cult artists and writers. Allegedly, Kerouac, Ginsburg, and the other beats frequented Trumley's on Bedford Street, and they also held court at the White Horse Tavern on Hudson and 11th, where legend has it that Dylan Thomas took his last drink, his 16th of the night, before checking out for good. On our first night in northern Michigan, I was reading Dan Wakefield's New York in the 50s, and we're listening to Mel Torme's songs of New York. CD, Songs of New York. And of course, he's tripped off of Russian memories. And I recalled, with a mixture of pleasure and regret, Christmas Eve spent attending Mass at St. Patrick's Cathedral. Uh, there's a story behind that. Meeting old friends at the train stations in Armonk and Farmingdale, and revisiting the site of my grandfather's pharmacy on 129th Street in Rockaway Beach. Carol reminisced about taking the New York Central up the Hudson to Scarsdale to visit her sister and niece. And also about lunch meetings with all high school friends at the Tavern on the Green. The next evening, while McCoy Tyner's New York reunion played softly in the background, we watched our slides and shamelessly oohed not about our old holiday rituals, ODing on off-Broadway plays, standing in line at 8 in the morning to get tickets for the latest Matisse or Moreau exhibit at the MoMA, and hiking at 2 a.m. against a cutting East River wind to the all-night brasserie on 54th for a hot cappuccino and a peshmelba. Midway through the slideshow, I was brought up short when two success successive pictures clicked on. One was of a photo we'd taken in 1996 on Fifth Avenue in front of the Doubleday Bookstore, and the next slide showed the facade of the Scribner's Pavilion a few doors down. Both reminded me of a recent, a recent feature column in the Times, a piece that mourned the loss of the old New York bookstores. Brentano's, Doubleday, Scribner, Books and Company, 
Shakespeare and Company and the Abbey and Pomander bookshops. And if I wrote this set thing today, there'd be a lot more. And then there was the article last week about the closing after 64 years of Rainbow and Stars, formerly the Rainbow Room. The chic, sophisticated nightclub situated in the crow's nest of the central skyscraper at Rockefeller Center. On a clear, on a clear night, high up there on the 65th floor, you could see the searchlights illuminating the nearby Chrysler and Empire State Buildings, the dancing shadows of Central Park, the Statue of Liberty's torch, and the necklace of, sh of shimmering lights atop the Brooklyn Br Bridge. Dinner and drinks at the Rainbow Room were always too expensive for the likes of us. But on birthdays and anniversaries, we take the subway and bus into the city and stand at the back of the bar. For less than 25 bucks, we could nurse a drink and watch performers like Julie Bennett, Tony Bennett, Julie London, and Eartha Kitt belt out jazzy arrangements of Cole Porter, Rogers and Hart, Johnny Mercer, and Gershwin standards. Maybe transporting all this New York memorabilia wasn't such a good idea after all. Because the more we reminisced, the more we longed to be back in the city. But which city would it be? The one that exists now? Or the New York I've conjured up in countless daydreams over the three plus decades of my exile? The following morning, I promised myself that we changed the routine. For the rest of the week, we woke up early, brewed a pot of coffee, I'd ride at the dining room table, Carol painted up in the loft, and after mid-morning breakfast, we'd walk or cross-country ski in the woods. Late afternoon, Carol would cook up a winter soup or stew, and I might bake some bread before we took a cat nap. At dusk, one of us would feed the fire, and we'd read till dinner. The only concession we made to our New York dreams and our New York past was on Thursday night. Right before bedtime, we sat in front of a waning fire and put on some Sinatra and Ella Fitzgerald CDs. Pretty soon, we were time tripping again, matching reminiscences of lazy Saturday mornings when we were kids tuning into Martin Block and later to William B. Williams on WNEW's Make Believe Ballroom. I grew up in Rockaway Beach, which is in Queens, in the late 40s and all through the 50s. Our neighborhood extended for 23 blocks, beginning at the boardwalk on 116th and ending at Reese Park Beach at the foot of the Marine Parkway Bridge, an imposing steel and concrete structure that spanned Jamaica Bay and connected the Rockaways to the Flatbush Avenue extension in southeast Brooklyn. Like Leelanau County, Rockaway is a long, narrow peninsula surrounded on three sides by the Atlantic Ocean and Jamaica Bay. In the summer, the beaches and boardwalks from Reese Park to Edgemere were as crowded as the ones at Coney Island or Jones Beach. Because we were set apart from the clamor of the city, the Rockaway Peninsula had the feel of a small town or a village. 129th Street, three blocks from my house, was the neighborhood shopping hub. On that block, between Cranston and Newport Avenue, stood my grandfather's drugstore, Sam Cammie's Deli, the Peter Reeves Supermarket, Cushman's Bakery, Irv's Candy Store, Tishman the Tailor, the Tidal, the Tidal Gas Station, and Johnny's Shoe Repair Shop. At night, us kids hang out at, hung out at Irv's, smoking cigarettes and fabricating stories about our successes with the popular girls in our class. We schmoozed with neighbors while standing online at the bakery, and we caught up with 
the local, on the local gossip while sipping egg creams at the soda fountain in my grandfather's pharmacy. The only troublesome skirmishes arose when the Catholic kids from St. Francis would taunt us Jewish kids for being Christ killers. From my house, situated 100 yards from Jamaica Bay, you could see the outlines of the Manhattan skyscrapers 25 miles to the west. As a teenager, I had visions of becoming a writer. And so I was irresistibly drawn to the myth of New York as the white city, as a literary mecca. But that dream faded when Columbia turned me down for admission. A few years later, I was dating Carol, attending a small college on uh, Long Island, Hofstra, working weekends at the pharmacy, renting the dingy walk up in the village, and taking an elective writing class at the new school. My would-be poems and short stories were coming back with form letter rejections, and when I graduated, I had virtually no job prospects and no money. So in 1964, Michigan State offered me a teaching assistantship. Carol and I moved to East Lansing. My hope was to get my PhD in English and head right back to New York. From the start, Life in Michigan was not an easy passage. My difficulties, I'm sure, were rooted in disposition as well as in geography. During graduate school, I struggled to attune myself to the less urgent pace, an understatement at best, of Midwestern life. It perplexed me that on weekends, my neighbors were content to play with their kids, wash their cars, watch TV, take care of their lawns. And for the five years I lived here, I whined about not being able to get the times each day, or about having to drive for an hour to Southfield and back just to get a good bagel. I made a big fuss over the non-existence of egg creams in Michigan, and I could never quite get the hang of driving directions. In New York, the streets have numbers and names. We say things like swing a left on 14th or hang a right on the Ocean Parkway. Out here, they tell you to go north or south, <laughs> and then they give you nebulous markers like a church or a school. You need a compass to figure out how to navigate even a small town like East Lansing. Trivial concerns, yes in retrospect, but not then. But to a congenital New Yorker, everything's an inconvenience. <laughs> Part of our ethic, and I think our charm, is to complain. A tougher accommodation, though, was adjusting to the inbred politeness and reserve of Midwestern friends. It's taken years, for example, to understand even, even simple telephone etiquette. When a friend says, I have to let you go now, it's a polite euphemism for you've been talking my ear for an hour and I want to get back to my life, okay? which is what most New Yorkers would have said. And since I moved here, I've been advised more than once that I'm a whiny, opinionated Easterner. It's funny because when I was growing up, I had the, rep and I had the reputation for being the least assertive member of my family. It's hard, isn't it, to underplay the ways in which geography and location influence our sense of self. When I got my doctorate in the mid-70s, I could see the teaching positions in the arts and humanities were awfully scarce. A college job in New York was out of the question, and I didn't want to move to Iowa or Kansas to teach five sections of remedial writing at a junior college. So I compromised. I accepted an offer, offer to stay on as a freshman composition instructor at Michigan State, all the while thinking that within five years, something back east was bound to open up. 
That was almost 40 years ago, and I'm still here. I recall when the realization that I wouldn't be going back to New York sunk in. About 15 years ago, I was catching as usual to a colleague about how much I yearned to be back in New York. Everyone on the faculty here, she said, I mean everyone, has wished in their mind that they were somewhere else. Yale, Columbia, University of Chicago, Berkeley, get over it, it comes with the territory. Since we've lived in the Midwest, we've intermittently longed for the city's romance and allure as well as for its dissonant ambience, the subway, the tumult and animation of an urban neighborhood. And there were times in those early years when I especially yearned for the aggressive give and take of those commando coffee clutches I used to participate in back in the village. But things have changed over the decades. In some ways, the Midwest has become more like New York than people here care to admit. Traffic jams, road rage, and people flipping you the bird are now part of the texture of our daily lives. It used to take 10 minutes to drive the five miles from campus to my friend's house. Now it takes a half hour. And Michigan drivers, once reputed to be the soul of courtesy, they're the ones that probably said that, don't hesitate to cut you off without saying signaling, or they'll crawl up your bumper if you're cruising at under 80 in a passing lane. Plus, all of a sudden, there are too many shops that sell imitation New York bagels, and a glut of stores masquerading as New York delis. And can anyone tell me why it costs twice as much out here for an abridged edition of the New York Times? I shouldn't fetch so much, though. Over time, I've become grateful for several things about Michigan. For one, Carol and I can own a home and a getaway college and live comfortably on moderate fixed incomes, something we never could have managed in Manhattan. And over the years, I've assembled an enclave of ex-New Yorkers who I meet with regularly for coffee. And of course, there's the landscape of Lelano County. When we first moved to Michigan, colleagues and friends urged us to drive 200 miles due north and explore the segment of Michigan that extends from Traverse City on the western shore of Lake Michigan to Mackinac Island on the Lake Huron side. It's an imposing setting, dotted with woods, inland lakes, and picturesque fishing streams, abundant forests, working wineries, fruit farms, and rustic vacation homes. Sounds like Vermont, doesn't it? And the area is surrounded by three of the five Great Lakes. From the time I saw this part of Michigan, a, co a colleague took me on a cook's tour of Hemingway country. I was drawn to its aura and its ambience. And of course, the presence of Lake Michigan, Huron, and Superior, Superior reminded me of the Rockaways. Another enticement has to do with the mythology and lore that's evolved over the decades. Nowhere is this more prevalent than on the Leelanau Peninsula. Kathy Stocking, whose, books, whose book Letters from the Leelanau is a pay-on to the area, describes the peninsula as a Michigan e Eden with its trillium and northern lights only six hours away from Detroit. Detroit. And depending on whose version of the myth you buy, 
the word Leelanau is the Indian name for land of delight or beautiful lost Indian daughter. Stocking also writes of other prophecies and legends about the peninsula, such as the rumor that the Leelanau will be the site of the second coming of Christ, within, uh, with the next Messiah to be born at the 45th parallel, right about where the roadside picnic table is north of Sutton's Bay. <laughs> Whether one believes these stories or not, Stocking says that these myths and legends and fantasies about the Leelanau Peninsula are as much as anything testament, a testament to the way the delicate beauty of the place touches people's imaginations. I can vouch for the truth of that last statement because when I'm up north, as the natives call it, my imagination and sense of wonder are ignited in ways that rarely occur when I'm back in East Lansing, maybe New York. The catalyst can be anything from sitting on my deck, listening to the roar of the lake, to watching a midnight sky lit up by the northern lights, to coming upon a sudden blaze of sumac, sumac in the woods on a nippy fall day, or by walking the rocky beach at dawn, dawn, watching the slow infusion of pinkish orange light creep up across the lake's horizon. Like the Rockaways of Leelanau Peninsula is a loosely integrated network of small resort communities. These include Empire, Leland, Sutton's Bay, Lake Leelanau, Shawby Town, and Northport, the village where my cottage is located. Located right at the tip of Michigan's little finger, Northport often reminds me of 129th Street and Rockaway Beach, and even of certain small neighborhoods in Greenwich Village when I lived there in my college days. From the Rose Street Marina at the easternmost intersection of Naganaba and Bay Street, I can survey the entire downtown. There's Tom's Market, and across the street, Dog Ears, Pamela Grassley's bookstore. Her husband David's art gallery is right next door, and they share this and they share the same bathroom. At either place, at any time, you can count on running into a neighbor or an acquaintance. There's also the ship's gallery, pizza parlor slash Dairy Queen, where local high school kids hang out. Edie Joppich's art gallery is around the corner from Barb's Bakery, which is on Mill Street, and opens and closes, Barb opens and closes the shop according to a schedule that only she can divine. On most summer mornings, though, you can sit and linger over coffee in one of Barb's sweet rolls and catch up on the local gossip with Sarah Mead, who owns Shoreline's The Clothing and Tchotchke Shop next to Barb's. The filling station on the corner of Park and Wakazoo sells gas, rents videos, carries newspapers, and is a convenience store to boot. In the summer, you can even get the New York Times and the Chicago Tribune, if that is, you get there before nine. I'm going to skip a little in the interest of time. It's just more things about Northport uh, and get back uh, toward where I'm going to wind up. In the early 90s, just after the cottage was built, I had two cornea transplants, each of which gave me a big block of time away from teaching. The truth is I was in my early 50s and just beginning to think about my mortality. And midlife cornea transplants have a way of reminding you of the fact that you've already logged in more years than you probably have left. During my 18-month hiatus from teaching, I began to feel a nagging urgency, an inner voice that was warning me, if I didn't get serious about my writing now, I might never have the chance 
this chance again. So while I was AWOL from teaching, I spent a good piece of my time furiously drafting a series of essays about what else? Growing up in New York in the late 50s. It was as if someone had granted me a get-out-of-jail-free card because even before the eye surgeries, my patience with students was wearing thin. When they said goofy things like, this sucks, why can't we read happier books? My comments were becoming caustic and defensive. I even tossed a few guys out of class when they showed up unprepared or without their books, also a first for me. The surgeries had given me a chance to step back from teaching for almost 18 months. During that pe period, I got an MFA in creative writing, something I'd wanted to do for decades. I just hadn't been able to find an excuse that would give me permission to write. Naturally, when my paid vacation was over, I wasn't exactly keen on the idea of having to go back into the classroom. At first, I tried to make the best of it. I told myself, hey, sometimes an enforced absence is just what you need to reinvigorate yourself. But when I got back, I could see right away that things had changed and that my writing time had quickly evaporated. Not to mention the feeling that I felt like a space invader from out of space in my own classroom. Some of my freshmen glided into class on skateboards or rollerblades, some wore headphones, others ate snacks and drank soda. Oops, sorry, Midwesterners call it pop. While I talked, and a few even had a chutzpah to take calls on their cell phones. Uh, familiar scenario? Coupled with the effects of over two decades of reading 90 student papers every two weeks, repetitive and finally mind-numbing faculty meetings, maddening negotiations with bureaucratic, bureaucratic gatekeepers, and obligatory committee work left me thinking seriously that maybe it was time to move on. But to where and to do what? For decades, the single constant in our lives was those annual trips to New York. In October, right around the time we booked our hotel, I set up a meeting with Ken Clagan, our financial advisor, to discuss the possibilities of early retirement. In the back of my mind, I was entertaining the notion of maybe moving back to New York, or if we couldn't afford to do that, perhaps uh, somewhere else in the East, Boston, Philly, DC, Baltimore. Ken Clagan had been our advisor ever since I turned 50, and we'd done reasonably well under his tutelage. This time, when I asked him about the prospects of getting out at age 57, he took a sheet of paper out, itemized the things that Carol and I would have to do to make this even a remote possibility. If the stock market continued to do well, as it had for the past few years, he said we'd still have to make some sacrifices that neither one of us had previously considered. When he finished itemizing our debts, Clayton gave us two pieces of advice. The first was pay down the credit card and to make sure we don't run up more interest charges, charges, he as much as ordered us to pay the balance in full each month. Okay, reasonable enough. But what he said next wasn't quite as easy to swallow. I know you both like to travel, and you like eating in good restaurants, he said. I could feel myself starting to squirm in my chair. Well, you're going to have to cut back on those if you want to get out in five years. That one hurt. Traveling and eating out are two of the pleasures that helped me cope with living in Michigan. At least that's how I'd rationalized it so far. While I was cheering that one over, he leaned forward in his chair and he said, Mike, 
You're always complaining about not having enough time to write. I suggest you put a hold on your New York trips and instead get your lazy ass up to the cottage and write. <laughs> Tough talk coming from your financial advisor. I could accept not going to Europe every other year, and I could live with not eating out much in good restaurants, but ever since we'd moved uh, to the Midwest, those New York trips were a lifeline, my way of connecting with my old roots, with my old self, really. I whined and fetched, of course, and it took a while for us, me especially, to wean ourselves away from those annual New York excursions. But eventually, go north we did. Five years later, I was able to take early retirement, and when, I, and when I left the university, I was finishing up two books, neither of which I'm sure would have been written had I not taken Clagan's advantage, advice to heart. Just as he'd predicted, coming up here to write did indeed help temper my feelings of displacement. And yet, I was still worried that I ruminated too frequently about my old life in the village. Still, in more temperate moments, I recognized that the New York I daydream about and the Leelano County I over-romanticize are as much states of mind as they are physical settings. Other writers I know have experienced a similar disparity. In her anthology, Leaving New York, Kathleen, Kathleen Norris writes that Willa Cather experienced her best writing years in Greenwich Village from 1912 to 1927 when the most celebrated of her Nebraska no novels were published. To do fictional, fictional justice to Nebraska, Norris says, apparently Cather found it necessary to remain in New York. An ex-New Yorker Leslie Brody says in her memoir, Red Star Sister, I had to leave New York in order to preserve its poetry. Similarly, when I'm up north, I find myself fantasizing about New York, as always, and this has caused me to speculate. I've lived in New York, in Michigan, and in an imaginary New York. Let's say I did move back to Rockaway or the, rest, or the West Village. Would I then become nostalgic for my Michigan retreat, or even for my not-so-exciting life in East Lansing? I'm thinking here of something one of my coffee clutch cronies it, once told me. New York, he said, is that old girlfriend that you hope won't show up one day and God forbid start hitting on you because like you, she'll be 57 and not the young girl you remember. He's right because recently I saw two more articles in the Times, one proclaiming that WQEW, the last New York outlet for jazz and pop standards, has become a Disney-oriented kids station, and the other announcing that the brasserie is being remodeled for the first time since it was built in 1959. The new brasserie will feature rows of video monitors, and it will no longer serve cappuccino and desserts, and it'll close at midnight. I know I sound pretty retro here, but when I'm thinking clearly, I'm aware, as my coffee clutch Kearney observed, that locales invariably do change, especially in an evolving city like New York. Part of Manhattan's charm and its mystery is that it's always reinventing and redefining itself. And I'm not unaware that people can also change, my, myself included. 
As I stand in front of the bay window, I watch a tanker glide across the lake's horizon. Then I turn away and see uh, Carol's art displayed on the walls. I pause to gaze at the local painter David Graff's Lulinol landscape entitled Manitou Dreams. In the bottom right corner, David wrote us an inscription that reads, to Carol and Mike living in paradise. I turn and see the bookcase to my left, and I stare at the section of the top shelf that's reserved for my writing. And that's when I spot the blinking cursor that beckons me back to my morning's work. In that long moment, it occurs to me that my midlife memories of Greenwich Village are not unlike my early dreams of becoming a writer. And uh, now, some three decades later, I am a writer, but I'm living in Michigan, not New York. For decades, the New York of memory and imagination has represented excitement and wonder, the opportunity to be caught up in the whirlwind of a more stimulating, even sometimes enchanting existence. At the same time, my equally imagined Leelanau landscape offers a grounded and more meditative state of being. At different moments, in different moods and phases, I'm alternately drawn to one or the other, sometimes to both, simultaneously. At some level then, I realize that this is about learning to accept the life I have, not the one I fancy. Case in point, the other day a writer friend was chiding me about this same conundrum. Haven't you ever had a fantasy about living in a more glamorous place, I asked him. Sure, he said, I'd love to have a pied a terre in Paris, and I'd go there whenever I wanted a taste of that life. So what's stopping you then? Well, if I did it, he said, it wouldn't be a fantasy anymore, would it? So as I walk the few steps to the computer, memory and imagination are already transporting me back to the West Village of my college days. And once I sit down in front of the screen, I write the following. I'm crossing 6th Avenue after my writing class, and the afternoon sky is turning dark. The nannies in the park and the old guys playing chess have long since departed, but the basketball games at the cage are still going full bore. I swing over to Bleecker and stop at the Italian market to pick up a loaf before heading back to the potbelly for my late afternoon ritual, a mug of hot cider, some down-home, hard-nosed, New York City kibitzing. Thank you.